0: realizing we were going to do this, so I started reading through there, but we're in Judges chapter 6, and we're going to look at Gideon today. I'm a well familiar story, um, but I guess just kind of as as I was preparing for this morning um, and uh, the week, as kind of the weeks have gone on, um, I just felt like I wanted to share the fact that um, I'm human. Um, I, you know, in our spiritual lives, there's ups and downs, and I feel like I've been kind of going through... One of those low points where it's just been more difficult to uh, read my bible and pray and things like that and um, i kind of share that because um, i heard a pastor recently say and i'm probably getting his words not perfectly right but he said at the risk it was the idea of like at the risk of being too vulnerable and i kind of thought huh like why would a pastor be afraid um, to be too vulnerable that's kind of a scary place to be Um, And as I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about where I'm at, and I have to preach this morning, um, and I don't feel like, you know, maybe I'm the right person to be up here, whatever that is, Uh, I was kind of, as the more I studied, I was like, yeah, that's probably a little bit maybe how Gideon would have (laughs) felt if he was able to look back and self-assess. He maybe wouldn't have been able to do that. You'll see next week. Um, The story maybe doesn't end as well as we hoped it would. Um, but here we got uh, the story of Gideon, a well-known story um, to most of you, I'm guessing. Um, but I, I just kind of wanted to remind you, uh, one of the things, kind of the main thing that we're going to be seeing today, um, Wes pointed out at the very first sermon, was one of those three things, the one thing, the one of those three that we'll be focused on today is the fact that God can use anybody. Um, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're at, what your status is, what you know, God can use Anybody, And it's crazy, um, as I was doing my study for this, I went back to my uh, Old Testament survey notes from Bible college, and uh, my professor had a, um, a, a nice graphic that I thought was helpful for me. I, I remembered it. I just had to find it, um, and uh, it stuck with me for the last 10 to 12 years, whatever that is. Um, and so I thought it'd be helpful to share as we continue through the book of Judges, um, and Wes kind of talked about it, he maybe just didn't use the same words, but there's this, this cycle that we continue to see him go through. We saw it last week um, with Deborah and Barak, but um, you know, verse one in chapter six, it starts out, it says, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, right? There's the first, well, depending on where you jump in on the cycle in the story, um, there's always sin, where Israel decides to turn away from God, um, do whatever, do what is right to them, what they feel like is the best thing. And so then the next part of that circle is uh, servitude. And obviously, um, my Old Testament survey professor was a pastor because he's got them all S words. There's five S words, so you can try to remember them easier. But um, So they, they sin, they fall into servitude. God brings a oppressor to um, come in and oppress whatever part of the Israel is struggling or at that point and um, you know today for us it's the Midianites plus a few other groups that kind of tag along and so God sends a people to oppress them Um, and then after the servitude there's always supplication where they cry out Um, it says that I think it's in uh, verse 7 for us when the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian the Lord sent a prophet to them. Um, so they cry out, that gets to the point where it's so bad that they feel like there's no other option. You know, they've done and went to all their other gods and those obviously didn't work. So they, they remember, there's still always this, uh, this God part of them somewhere. You know, even though they're worshiping other gods, somewhere in the back of their mind or in their heart and their spirit, they remember and they didn't completely abandon God and forget him. And they cry out to him. And then he brings a judge to help bring salvation. Um, Usually it's always military as long as hoping to try to bring them back to God. And that lasts for a while. And then there's a period of silence. For Gideon it was, I think, 40 years. We'll see next week where he, he brought salvation to the Israelites. And there was a period of 40 years there in their area where they were good. And then it eventually gets to the point where their sin is so... Um, guts to a point that God says, okay, I'm gonna bring a nation, and then they cry out, and then God brings salvation, and then there's silence. It just keeps going around and until the point where it gets, as Judges goes, it just gets worse and worse until the point where they want a king and God, um, and that's after Judges. Um, but Judges 6 in the story of Gideon today, um, just kind of as a general, like God has a plan. There's always a plan for him to bring salvation for his people. Um, The first uh, 10 verses is uh, just kind of a review of the situation. After Deborah and Barak, it says in verse 1, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Malachites, and Ketamites came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to waste it. So Israel became poverty stricken because of Midian and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Uh, seven years of oppression from a foreign enemy. Maybe we may think oh, seven years isn't that long. Some of them are longer. Some of them in the book of Judges are like 20 years but just try to put yourself in their shoes and imagine um, if you were part of Gideon's family say and you've had seven years and you farmers may be, be able to understand this a little bit better where you plant a crop You do all the work, and somebody comes in and basically pushes you out, takes all of your hard work, takes all of your food. They bring their cattle, their sheep, whatever they have to graze off of your pastures. Then they, from what it looks like, um, they go and they either kill your ox and your sheep and eat them so that they don't have to deal, you know, they don't have to kill their own, um, leaving you... Wondering where your food is going to come from, um, why you continue to plant in the first place if you know that it's just going to get taken from you, to the point where you leave your home, your villages, your cities, and you're finding caves and hiding places um, to try to avoid this oppressive army, this oppressive people that have come in and taken over your area, your land. Um, You're not really, you know, it's hard to find food. It says they were poverty stricken. Um, They took their crops. They took, there was no ox or sheep or donkey. And I don't think they ate the donkey. Maybe they used it. Maybe they did. I don't know, something else. Um, Just try to pause for a moment and try to imagine what that would do for you um, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually for seven years. Year after year. You continue to struggle to find food um, and you're forced out of your home, okay? I I would venture to guess that there's probably not many, very, very few either here in this room or watching online that can even imagine or have even come close to experiencing anything like that in all reality. Seven years of poverty and fear and just wondering how you're going to find food, and how you, day by day, what you're going to do today. Um, And it's interesting that uh, the the writer of Judges, he references the Midianites as a great swarm of locusts, Um, and if you you look back uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 28 verses 38, chapter 28 in Deuteronomy is where God is saying, If you obey me, I'm going to bless you. And these are some of the things how I'm going to bless you. If you disobey, there will be curses, there will be consequences. And this is how that's what that's going to look like. Um, In Deuteronomy 28, 38, he says, You will sow much seed in the field, but harvest little, because locusts will devour it. Um, God is staying faithful to what he said. They walked away from him in disobedience. He is... He is letting them experience the consequences and the curses from what he said, however many years ago. And so this is a little different in Gideon. In in chapter 6, God sends a prophet. In verse 7, when the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt to the place of slavery. Sorry. Sorry. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I delivered you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am Yahweh, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you did not obey me. Um, So God is basically saying, remember, I am your redeemer. The Egyptians were a lot more powerful um, then the, the oppressor that you're experiencing right now, I am your God, um, have always been your God, and but you have disobeyed, and that is why you're in the situation you are in. Um, so he's kind of setting the stage, the the writer of Judges for what's to come, that sin part of the sin in the in the supplication where they cry out to God um, of our cycle. And as I was thinking just this first section, um, it's amazing how God is always there for His children, um, even when they're disobedient, right? Israel has walked away. They're choosing other gods. Uh, They've, um, verse 1, it says, they've done evil in the sight of the Lord, but God doesn't abandon them um, because He said He wouldn't, you know, and earlier in Scripture, um, and He's always there ready to redeem when they cry out to him. Um, God is faithful to his promises. Deuteronomy 7, 9, know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant, his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. God is faithful, um, but he is also the one who redeems and when we cry out to him and we confess our sins, like First John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us of those things. Um, so even when we are disobedient and we're struggling, um, God is right there. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't abandon us. Um, when you are one of his children, he is there and he's, he's even working in the midst of all of that. And he's waiting for you to come back to him and say, I'm sorry, I messed up. You know, will you forgive me? And he does, and he moves on, um, and he comes back and brings us back to him. So that's kind of the situation. We move into chapter verse 11 where we see God calling Gideon, and I'm probably not going to read um, all of this, um, but remember the situation, every man for himself. And this is a pretty familiar story. Is this one of your favorites, Donnie? I've heard you talk about it a lot at Splash, um, Remember the situation, every man for himself. So Gideon, um, God comes, and he's sitting under a tree. Um, it talks about the angel of the Lord. Um, and when you see that phrase, angel of the Lord, here we uh, think of, this is a, a uh, ah, what's the word I'm looking for? The fancy word is theophany, but it's um, God is making an appearance um, in some form or fashion. This could be uh, an appearance by Jesus, you know, just is in a different, different way before You know, he comes as a baby and all of that. Um, But it's obvious as you read through the text, it's not obvious to begin with, but as you read down in Gideon, his response um, when the angel burns his offering and disappears, it's obvious that Gideon was in the presence of God in some form or fashion. So he comes down um, and he finds Gideon. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Um, And we don't have any clue... Those are foreign things to us. But if they would have been threshing wheat back then, they didn't have a nice combine that did all of that for you and either put it in the top and spit the rest out the back, it would be done um, in the field, probably in a wide as, as, as wide open of an area as you could because they would throw that grain up so that the wind could blow through, separating the grain from the chaff. Now, obviously, if you are being oppressed and the Midianites are coming in and taking out all away, you don't want to be doing that out in the open because you're going to see that. So Gideon is at a wine press, which would have been a bowl-like or a square kind of cut out of rock that you could put the grapes in, that they would step in it and they would crush it, um, crush those grapes to get the juice to come out. And this was usually, it's either in the, um, the vineyard where you grow those grapes or in some kind of um, forest area where there's trees, bushes, things around. So he can do this without... Uh, being seen and we think oh you know some people think well maybe he's a coward well I mean, is, <laughs> think of where he's at I mean I would have been doing the same thing if I was wondering where my next meal was coming from I'd be doing everything I could to guarantee that nobody was going to be taking that from me um so that's where he's at the angel of the Lord comes to him in verse 12 and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said the Lord is with you mighty warrior um and it's apparent um, from, as we, if, you, if we read through this whole text, that Gideon is obviously not a mighty warrior, right? If you look down later on, he talks about how he is, um, his tribe is the weakest of Manasseh um, in verse 15. And he's the youngest in his father's house. Like, he is not a mighty warrior, obviously. And, um, but yet God comes to him and calls him, um, I think some translations say, a mighty man of valor, and, and we find this interesting, he hasn't, Gideon is not that yet, he becomes that, um, but even before he is that, God calls him that, and he identifies Gideon as that mighty warrior, and it's, um, it's often, I think, throughout our lives that we need to be reminded that God doesn't define us by our past, or even where we're at, or the inadequacies of what we don't have, but he defines and looks at us through, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you know, after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we are, you know, he looks at us through like Christ. He sees Christ in us because of what God has done for us. And for some of us, um, maybe we really need to hear this, right? There's a lot of people um, in our day and age who have been called a lot of things, right? Maybe it's a failure, or you're a wimp, or you're stupid, or you're a mistake, or, oh, it was an, that you're, you're an accident, Um, you know, or probably a lot of other things that I can't mention from the pulpit. Um, And a lot of times, I was just saw something this morning, negative words are so easy to remember, but those positive, encouraging ones are so quickly forgotten for whatever reason, And I think Gideon is experiencing some of that. He doesn't think that he is a mighty warrior, yet God calls him a mighty warrior. And even later on, Gideon's own father, if you look down um, in verse uh, 32, Gideon's own father, after the incident with the tearing down the altar, gives him a new name that some scholars think was actually a curse. Because Jurabal Jerob, or however you say it, means let, um, let Baal contend with him. Basically, his dad was saying, well, we'll see if Baal is going to, you know, take care of this problem that Gideon has created. Um, so probably even from his own father, as we see, that he is not getting um, that, what he gets from God. And when we come to God, and he becomes your father, and he changes your identity, and I think that's what we see here. God is calling him by his new identity. And when you confess your sins, um, you you become one of his children. And I looked up a few things um, on what is our identity now as followers of Jesus. Um, And I'm just gonna read a very condensed list of some of the things uh, that we now have as um, followers of Jesus. We have been redeemed and forgiven of all our sins. Okay, that's where it starts. That's amazing, the first thing. Uh, You are, I am, a member of Christ's body. Okay? We are a saint. These are all Scripture-based. We have been adopted as God's children. You are taken from one family that is destined for destruction and put into God's heavenly family as one of His children. You have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. We'll talk a little bit later about that, too. Uh, we are free forever from condemnation. We are assured that all things work together for good. We are hidden with Christ in God. We are God's temple. We are God's co-worker. We are God's workmanship, God's handiwork. And we may approach God with freedom so God sees us not as what our old identity is either in sin or our inadequacies or the things that we think don't measure up he sees us in who he has created us to be and for Gideon he is going to make him into a mighty warrior so he goes from this call of Gideon where he he, Gideon kind of he kind of goes back and forth with God, Gideon says, well, you know, God, how are you here if we're being oppressed by all these people? I think you've abandoned us. Uh, and God says, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel. Um, and Gideon says, uh, my family's the weakest. I can't do that. But God says, verse 16, I will be with you. Um, you will strike down Midian as if it were one man. And we're going to kind of skip over that first um, that section there where he, Gideon goes and gets uh, some food and provides it and um, the angel of the Lord takes that as an offering to him and jump down to verse 25 where we see Gideon's first test after God calls him and brings him um, and asks him to do something. And, he, and on that very night, so this is the same day, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old, tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Um, So God is asking Gideon to set things right in his household and community before he goes out and leads um, the nation of Israel. And we can see from the story that this is obviously not a very simple task, okay? Gideon is so afraid of this task that God has asked him to do that he does it in the cover of night um, because he knows that there's gonna be serious retribution and consequences for tearing down This altar to Baal, that his family in this community has probably invested significant resources to build up um, and to make and to um, have uh, worship the God of Baal at this place. Um, It's almost kind of like their church. It's like he's going in and kind of tearing down their church. Um, But God wants him to set things right. Um, And we see. Um, both in this section and throughout the story of Gideon, that when God guides him to do something, he provides what he needs. He does this at the cover of night. Everybody wakes up in the morning. Um, the people and the guys in the community are pretty ticked off. They're, they're investigating. They find out Gideon is responsible. They go to Gideon's dad, and they're demanding that his dad bring him out so that they can kill him because they this is the offense. Um, that's what they think is he deserves for tearing down this altar. And not only did he tear down the altar, God asks him to build an altar to God. My version talks about a well-constructed altar to the the one true God. Um, and he sacrificed his dad's animals, which were pretty, probably a pretty expensive thing for him to do. Um, and God works even in all of that situation to provide for Gideon he should have been his dad probably should have been ticked off as well um and you know said "Yeah, here he is you know kind of that's what he deserves for what he's doing but God protects him God provides for him and even in um the earlier section we see that God is when he gives him a a direction he's going to provide he said I'm going to be with you um and you know you've probably heard that phrase: "Where God guides, He provides." He won't ask you to do something, and then not provide the resources, or the abilities, or the the gifts, or the people necessary to do what He asks you to do. Um, and I just happen to be reading in. Um, if many of you have probably heard the devotional book *Experiencing God* um, by Henry Blackaby and he shares the story of his association of churches that he was involved with in Canada. Um, And they had a plan. Does anybody know, remember what the World Fair is? Like right now, everything is like so shut down that we've kind of forgotten what the world used to operate on. But the World Fair was coming to their um, Vancouver, where their church was, and they felt like God was leading them to try and reach out to the 22 million people who would come to their city. Um, but their churches, their kind of denomination, only had about two thousand members, people in their different churches, um, and their budget at that point that they had that they had coming leading up to that uh, was uh, nine thousand in one year, and then the next year it had sixteen thousand. So just very minimal budget that they had had, but they felt like God was leading them to do that. And when they sat down two years ahead of time and started to do their planning. They felt like it was going to take $202,000 for them to do this outreach, to reach out to these 22 million people that would be coming to their city. And so they set that as their budget from 16000 one year to $202,000 the next year, believing that that was what God was calling them to do. Um, they had about 35% of that $202,000 was... Um, was already there. Like people had said, said that they would give that. So I don't know what the math is there. I didn't do that. But only 35% was already provided. They were trusting God to provide the other 65%. Um, <clears throat> at the end of that year, he asked their treasurer treasure, how much money they had received. And from the Canada, the United States, and other parts of the world, they had received $264,000 dollars. Um, And during the fair, the outreach that they had provided had became a catalyst to see almost 20,000 people accept Jesus Christ. Um, You cannot explain that in terms... You cannot explain that except in terms of God's intervention. Only God could have done that. Um, And don't get caught up on the fact that that was money, but where God is leading somebody, where God is leading Gideon, he will also provide what he needs, Sometimes in unique ways, as we're gonna see next week with the rest of the story. Um, So Gideon passed his first test. He'd done what God had asked him to do, yet maybe not, you know, we kinda think he's still probably not that courageous, mighty warrior. He does it in the the dark of night to try to hide and um, keep himself from being found out, but he passes it. And God um, provides for him in the midst of that. And so Gideon, in verse 33, um it's just uh, verse 33 is just a reminder of the situation the Midianites the Amalekites Chemites gathered together across the Jordan camped in the valley of Jezreel they were being it was that time where they came in eating all their food taking all their animals um verse 34 the spirit of the Lord took control of Gideon and he blew the ram's horn and the Abizrites rallied behind him um Throughout Judges, you'll see that the Spirit of the Lord um, comes upon them. Most often, we associate it with the story of Samson and his strength. Um, But how amazing that God used the Spirit, Holy Spirit to kind of clothe and and fill certain people for specific things in the Old Testament. And now, in the New Testament, after Christ's resurrection, uh, when you become a follower of Jesus, that Holy Spirit that helped these judges do all of these things lives in you permanently, all the time. You have that access to God through the Holy Spirit. And it would have taken the spirit God's help to do to call an army because Gideon was, like he said, he was from a small tribe. He was the youngest of his family. In that day and age, that meant that he did not have the authority to blow a trumpet and rally troops around him. That was reserved for those who were... um, Higher up, or had bigger families, or definitely not the youngest of the family, the oldest of the family, and things like that. Um, so it would have taken God's help, and He gets um, people from several different tribes. Verse 35: He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, rallied behind him. He also sent messengers throughout all of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, who also came to meet him. Well, we find out later in um, chapter seven, 32,000 guys come um, and are ready to help Gideon. Um, Somebody who probably doesn't have a whole lot of military experience um, to try to defeat this enemy. And we see in chapter 7 later, um, next week you'll see it, but the odds are 135, 132, no I can't remember specifically, to 30-some thousand. So 130-some thousand to 30-some thousand. You've got 130 troops, people, experienced military, probably generals and people who are used to leading campaigns, and you've got Gideon with very little experience and 30,000 men, and the odds are stacked against him. And again, if you try to put yourself in Gideon's shoes, okay, would you be questioning, is this really what God wants me to do? Like, yeah, I know he said it, and even I saw him, and he, I heard him, but like, the odds are not good. And so, I, even in my, I mean, I've, I've done it at certain times. Is that really what God wants me to do? I'm going to seek confirmation. And that's what Gideon does with the fleece, right? We have, uh, the fleece is another pretty well-known story in Judges. Gideon's trying to make sure, God, are you sure you want me to go do this impossible task? And God's going to make it even more impossible after this. Um, but he's seeking confirmation, Um, And this whole idea of the fleeces, it's kind of a foreign thing to us. We kind of think that maybe he just pulled this idea out of his head, Um, but it was common um, in that time to kind of this yes, no, um, present this opportunity to a deity for a kind of a yes, no answer. Um, Other places in the Bible, it talks about the, I think the Urim and Thumim. I can never say them correctly. Um where they were kind of used as a like, okay, God, is, you know, do you want us to go this way, yes or no? God, David even does it a lot. God, am I supposed to go um, take on this army? Yes, no, there's several instances. It's just that Gideon is using a physical thing that he wants confirmation on God's will. So he puts the first test is fairly natural, right? He puts a fleece on the ground and he says, God, um, if this is what you want me to do, the fleece needs to be wet, the ground needs to be dry, If that's the case, I'll know that you want me to go fight this army. Well, that's fairly natural, right? If you walk out of your house in the morning and you walk into the grass and there's been dew, the grass is wet, your sidewalk is not wet, right? Because the grass is holding that moisture. So it would have been the same with a fleece. You put a wool fleece blanket that's going to soak up the dew, it's going to be wet. The ground is probably going to be dry if it's hard next to it. Um, So that wasn't uh, too big of a deal, um, so Gideon, obviously, um, he, he, he wants further confirmation. He goes to the second test where he reverses it, where it's obviously a supernatural, God would have to act in a supernatural way for the fleece to be dry if there was dew in the ground to be wet. Um, there's no other explanation than that God intervened. Um, and God does it Again. Um, and Gideon even knows he's almost like he's testing God's patience, like, uh, patience right? In verse uh, 39, it says, God, Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me, but let me speak one more time. Um, he knows what he's supposed to do. He, he knows God has given him confirmation, but he's just not quite there yet. Um, his faith is not quite there yet. Rhonda was reading in a, a novel by Ted Decker, this week, and it fits so well. He he said, one of the um, characters in there said, "Cowardice keeps man double-minded, hesitating between two worlds. True faith abandons one option for the other. Hesitation is the death of faith." Um, Gideon still he's not really sure that he wants to walk in obedience to God, even though he's got an army behind him now. It's not just himself. Um, And the question Gideon was basically asking, and I'll kind of close with this, is um, how do I know that this is what God wants me to do? How do I know God's will? Um, And I'll just close with a couple things regarding God's will. How do you discern God's will? A lot of us, like, okay, I'm going to give you, I've got one through six, I've got this six-step process. If you do these six steps, I can guarantee you that you will know God's will for your life, right? That's what we want but it's, that's not how God works. You read scripture, um, it's not how, I mean, that's not how God usually works. God gave Gideon a specific way to go, but most of the time throughout scripture, he doesn't give them a specific, right? Abraham, go to the place I'm sending you. I'm not going to tell you where, but I'm just asking you to go. Um, you know, lots of options. Um, examples in the Bible where God doesn't give specifics. So if you're coming to God praying and expecting a very specific answer to what God wants you to do, you will probably be disappointed. There's times that He does that, I'm not going to say it, that's, that's impossible, but that's not the norm, that's not usually what God does. And I think the number one thing that's important is that you have to be pursuing a relationship with Jesus, right? If you're expecting God to reveal what am I supposed to do this or this or this, without pursuing that relationship with Him, He might, but you know why is He going to give you direction and discernment for His will if you're not doing the simple acts of walking in obedience to Him on a day by day basis? Um, if I w- I went back to that Henry Blackaby um, uh, devotional book, Experiencing God, He puts it in the form of a rhetorical question. If you do everything Jesus tells you, one day at a time, will you always be in the center of where God wants you to be, okay? If you are focused on your relationship with God and walking in obedience to Him, that is um, where it starts, and it has to start there, Um, and then you can do some other things um, that, maybe I'll put some things up on um, Facebook. I did come across, Six questions that you can come up with that are helpful in determining God's will, but for the sake of time, um, we're going to, I'll put those up later this week. Um, but determining God's will, that's what Gideon was wanting to do. And when we, we have to continually be pursuing that relationship with God um, as the starting point, and it's not going to be a perfect solution or a perfect outcome every single time. Um, And you're going to make mistakes, and you're going to mess up, and you're going to sin. But God is going to be there when you come back to him um, to help you and to forgive you and to continue to help you on that way. Um, So do you see yourself in Gideon's story? I see myself a lot in a lot of these things and things we're going to look at next week. Next week we're going to look at um, chapters 7 and 8 and the rest of Gideon's story. Um, God shows up and he asks Gideon to change the direction of his life. Okay? Gideon was living in fear. He's threshing his wheat in a wine press you know, because of all of the, the circumstances of his time frame. And he's, we see from his family that he is disobedient to God. He's worshiping other gods. Um, he's, he's doing things that are evil in God's sight. God shows up asks him basically to completely turn from what he knows and what he's been doing and obey him, to obey God, to go a completely different direction, um, to be courageous, to be bold, to become that mighty warrior, to destroy the what he was worshiping and to worship God. And as I was thinking about that, what is, that's a picture of repentance, really, Right? We were in sin, or you are in sin. You are being disobedient to God. You are worshiping things, whatever it is. Um, God shows up. He reveals to you the situation, that you are wrong, and that you need to change and turn and come to him. Um, It takes God showing up and opening our eyes to our current situation, and he simply asks us to accept the truth about where you are. Before Christ, you are in sin. You are going to spend eternal separation from God because of your sin. God shows up, he shows you that, and he just simply asks you to turn and go a different direction. He asks us to change directions and start worshiping and obeying him instead of what we had been worshiping and obeying in the past. That's the gospel, right? Turn from sin, accept God, and walk in obedience to Him. But that same formula is something God continually comes back to over and over and again in our lives. As we mess up, we sin, we continue to start to believe things that are not true, He shows up, maybe not be physically like He did with Gideon, but through His Word and the work of the Holy Spirit in you, He shows you that your current situation is not good, and He asks you to turn and agree and confess and walk in obedience to him. And it's a day-by-day, week-by-week process. And when we do that, when we make that choice, um, when we choose to follow God and walk in obedience to him, there's confidence, there can be hope, there can be peace, there can be joy, and oftentimes there's a lot of other amazing blessings and benefits of walking in obedience to God. Um, And that's kind of, I think, what we see in Gideon's story, is really we're all like Gideon. We're just every day, every week, we start to drift. We continue to, we start to do things that are not right. God shows up and just asks us to turn, turn away from those things um, and turn to him. So as we close our service today, we're going to sing a couple of songs in response to what we have learned from God's word. And the first few lyrics of the first song is a challenge for us to step up in obedience to God. It says, O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong. you think Gideon can say that? In the strength that God has given. We hope you've enjoyed today's message.